text of our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 5, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. This time we'll call the kids to the front for their children's sermon. Well, the verses that we just read tell us how God punished the evil Philistines for stealing his holy ark. But first, we have to think back to the battle. When the Philistines took the ark, they went to the city of Shiloh, where the tent church was, and they killed all the ministers of the church, and they burned the city down. When they took the ark away from Israel, they thought they were taking God away from the church. So they went to the holy place of Shiloh where God had his tent church and they destroyed the whole city. They were trying also to take the worship of God away from his church. It was like saying, not only did we take your God, but we destroyed his house and killed all his ministers. You can't even try to worship the God you don't have anymore. The Philistines were very evil. They were trying to fight God. Now that they had the ark, they thought they had captured the God of the whole world. Well, we know better, don't we? God had left his ark when Eli's wicked sons took it out of the church and hauled it out to the battlefield. Now, what did the Philistines do with the ark? They took it to one of their big cities, a place called Ashdod. And in Ashdod, they put it in the temple of one of their gods named Dagon. The Philistines worshipped many false gods. There's only one true God, and he's our God. Now, the name of their god, Dagon, comes from a word that means grain, which is what we call the fruit of plants like corn and wheat and rice or oats. They believed that Dagon was the, the god of the fields, and they believed that if they could make this god happy, then he would make their fields produce lots of grain. They worshipped a lot of other gods like that too, gods of, of rain, gods of fire, gods of animal herds, gods of war. They rejected the one true god and worshipped gods they made up in their own minds. When the Philistines came to Ashdod, they put God's ark in the temple of their idol god, Dagon. Doing this was like their way of saying thank you to their idol god for helping them destroy the worship of the one true god. Deep in their hearts, though, the Philistines must have known that they, they could never capture the true god, the god of the whole earth. So some of them got up early in the morning to look into the temple of Dagon and see if everything was all right. Well, everything was not all right. When they went inside Dagon's temple, they found that their idol god Dagon had fallen over. And not only had he fallen over, but he had fallen right on his face in front of the ark of God. It was like Dagon had fallen on his face 
to worship the one true God. And God made it look that way to show the Philistines that their Dagon was no God at all. The Philistines knew what God was telling them, but they wouldn't pay attention. They stood Dagon back up in his place. But the next morning when they came in to check on him, he had fallen over again. Only this time, his hands had broken off and his head had come off and rolled into the doorway. God was telling them that their God was nothing but a helpless stump of wood. Hands are what we work with, and the head is what we think with. When God broke off Dagon's hands and head, he was telling the Philistines that their idol God couldn't do anything and couldn't think. Now this story teaches us how foolish men are when they do not worship the one true God. Their minds and hearts are so dark because of the sin of not believing God that they can't even see how silly it is to worship something that can't move, can't think, can't work, can't hear, can't see, and can't talk. And the story also teaches us that anything we put before God that we serve or value more than Him, He will break. To show all the world that he alone is God. Now we'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets. And has spoken unto us in these last days by thy son. Speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of thy Son, Jesus Christ. For his name's sake, amen. Before we get into the events of our text, we need to look at the immediate aftermath of the battle. Israel had been defeated. A total of 34,000 men were slain, among whom were the two prospective candidates for high priest. The Ark of God was captured, and when word of this horrendous defeat reached 98-year-old Eli, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. His daughter-in-law goes into labor from the shock of the news and dies in childbirth, but not before naming her son Ichabod which means the glory is departed. Now that phrase, the glory is departed, is significant. It tells us that the church's only glory is God's presence in it. Her last words are, His name is Ichabod, for the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God has been taken. Notice the two voices of verbs in that sentence. Departed is a verb in the active voice. That means that the subject of the sentence is the doer of the action. God and his glory have departed. He up and left. But has been taken is in the passive voice, which means that the subject of the sentence is the recipient of the verb's action. The ark was taken. The ark is the recipient of that action. And in that statement, we see that Phineas' wife was a true believer. She recognized God's sovereign rule over the affairs of men in general and over the affairs of his church in particular. God wasn't captured. God left. 
And the only explanation for why the Philistines could carry off the ark is that God permitted it. Calling the ark God's glory is also very significant. Phineas' wife calls it that here. Asaph calls it that in Psalm 78, verse 61, where we read, God delivered his glory into the enemy's hand. The ark was God's throne among his people, and at the center of that throne was the mercy seat. God rules over his church in mercy. Though the Ten Commandments were inside the ark, signifying God's perfect righteousness violated by his people. The blood of an innocent substitute was poured over the violated law to propitiate God to his people in mercy. Atonement is the glory of God among his people. Without the ark, there was no atonement in Israel. No atonement, no glory. Now, 1 Samuel does not inform us as to what happened immediately after the ark's capture. But Psalm 78, Jeremiah 7, and Jeremiah 26 do. And those passages tell us that after the Philistines defeated Israel, they proceeded to Shiloh. When they came to Shiloh, they massacred the priests. They sacked the city, burned it to the ground, trashed the tabernacle, and left the place a monument of desolation, which it continued to be ever after. Now those are not the actions of your normal enemy. They are overkill, and we can only attribute them to the heartlessness produced by their superstitious idolatry. Idolatry and superstition always go hand in hand, and superstition and heartlessness go hand in hand. The Philistines had beaten Israel before, but not like this. So they decided to take advantage of their possession of Israel's lucky charm and crush them like Sherman burning Atlanta. All the inhabitants of Canaan had some notion that the God of the Hebrews was a God of great power. But their ideas about him were very muddled. This might have been because they didn't care to understand Israel's religion, but more probably, Israel were terrible representatives of their own religion. You'll recall that when Israel carried the ark to the battlefield, the Philistines' response was, Woe to us! These are the gods which struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Well, first of all, these were not gods. It was God, one God. Israel had failed to even convey the most basic feature of their own religion, that it was monotheistic. They worshipped one God, not gods. And secondly, while it is correct that God struck the Egyptians with plagues, it was in Egypt. It wasn't in the wilderness. The Philistines had the main features of Israel's religion all wrong. Reminds me of those liberal theologians the History Channel features in their crazy lost books of the Bible shows. You know, let's, let's find a person who openly rejects every single solitary Christian dogma and trot him out as the expert on a subject he doesn't even believe in. Well, anyway, you, you can understand why God uses the sacking of Shiloh in later years as a picture of his wrath against unfaithfulness to him. Asaph refers to it in Psalm 78. This means that God's people were forced to sing about this event when they gathered for worship. Jeremiah cites the event multiple times, it seems. Through Jeremiah, God appeals to the destruction of Shiloh in Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 26, verse 9, we find that one of Jeremiah's constant refrains was, This house shall be like Shiloh. 
and this city desolation without, desolate without an inhabitant. Now this information is, is, is important because it's the background to the events of our text. Judgment begins at the house of God. God chastised his wayward people. He departed, but he's not defeated. So we come to our outline. Number one, Dagon prostrate. Number two, Dagon shattered. And number three, the Philistine reaction. First, Dagon prostrate. Since we're in the weeks leading up to, to Good Friday and Easter, I chose as the sermon title, the line from the Apostles' Creed, he was dead and buried. Just as Christ was delivered up to sinful men by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God to be taken by wicked men and by sinful hands to be slain, likewise, God permitted his holy ark to fall into the hands of the wicked Philistines. But while Shiloh lay in ruins, God was busy wreaking havoc on his enemies. And that's the message of our text this morning. And it's an important lesson to learn that God disciplines his people, but he judges and punishes his enemies. And though the chastisement may be severe, it is not a full cutting off. God says in Isaiah 48, 9, For my name's sake I will defer my anger, and for my praise I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. In Psalm 78, 38 we read, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Awareness of this was certainly gone from Israel now, though, because there was no atonement without the ark for the, for the priest to pour blood on its mercy seat. Well, the first thing that we read is that the Philistines carried the ark to Ashdod. The Philistine empire consisted of a pentapolis, five city-states ruled by five Philistine lords. The cities were Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. Ashdod seems to be the most prominent of the cities, so it only makes sense that the Philistines would bring their trophy there. But Ashdod was also the center of Philistine religious life, which was largely dominated by worship of Dagon. Some scholars have speculated that Dagon was a fish god because the Philistines were originally seafarers. Their name and their customs tell us that they were not originally from Canaan. They migrated by sea and settled in Canaan. There is a Canaanite word or a Hebrew word for fish that sounds like the name Dagon. But if their god were a fish god from their homeland, his name would be a Philistine word, not a Hebrew word. The Philistines were syncretistic in their religion. In other words, they just adapted and adopted any local custom that, that seemed to work for them. We also know that there is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for grain is Dagon, which is a cognate of the name Dagon. The Philistines, as we will see in later passages, were very superstitious. And their superstition was especially intense when it came to the weather. Something with direct effect on crops, that is grain. So this Dagon was a grain god, a god of crops. The Philistines attributed their imagined success to their grain god, Dagon. And to demonstrate this, they placed their trophy in the perfect trophy case, Dagon's temple. I keep saying that the Philistines were superstitious, and right off the bat, we get an indication of that. If the Philistines were so confident 
In their victory over Jehovah, why was someone going to the temple of Dagon at the crack of dawn to see if everything was okay? That indicates that they had some, some fear or reservations about their trophy. I mean, if the Israelites had been so confident in their God's power, maybe there was more to him than this gold-plated box indicated. So some of the leaders of the Philistines come to Dagon's house in the morning to check on their God. Some religion, huh? Let's go check on our God and make sure he's okay. When they open the door to the temple, they find Dagon lying flat on his face before the ark of God. It's as if Dagon were lying prostrate in worship before Jehovah. And that was exactly God's intended point to the Philistines. They were being shown that their God could be manipulated and turned by the Lord at his will. Now, in an act of folly so bad it's hard to put into words, the devotees of Dagon stand him back up in his place. One is reminded of those sarcastic passages in Isaiah 44 or 46 where God mocks the the folly of idolatry. In Isaiah 44, God speaks of the man who cuts down a tree and he, he makes an idol from some of the wood and the rest of it he uses for firewood to cook his meals. God mockingly says, he burns half of it in the fire. With this half, he eats a meal, he roasts the roast, and is satisfied. He warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. If Dagon were really a god who could deliver, he would have kept his tree from being chopped down and having most of it used as firewood. If he was so great, he could have kept himself from getting body slammed onto the floor of his own temple. A God who needs help standing back up is no God at all. But this is exactly the type of God that pagans worship. The idols of our society from like 30 years ago, where are they today? They're washed up singers and actors, exhausted athletes who are a mere shell of their former selves. The fervor of their devotees is is matched only by the fervor with which they were replaced once their 15 minutes of fame had passed. One day the idol is winning awards all over the world and the next day he's doing a lifeline commercial. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. The five lords of the Philistines took counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. In verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 2, which I just quoted, Christ declares the promise of the Father in these words, The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel, which incidentally brings us to our second point. Dagon shattered. After the Philistines had stood Dagon back up in his place, they were a little more unnerved than they had previously been. They were more anxious to check on poor Dagon the next morning. When they came into his temple the next day, Dagon had not just fallen prostrate before Jehovah's Ark. He had fallen over all right, but his head and his hands were broken off. And there's some manifest symbolism in God's acts against Dagon. First, as we told the kids, 
Hands symbolize the ability to work, to do things. Dagon no longer had, he had his hands broken off. This was God's way of saying something and demonstrating it at the same time. It said that Dagon could not do anything. He had hands, but he couldn't handle. Dagon had a mouth, but he couldn't speak. Dagon had eyes, but he couldn't see. He had feet, but he couldn't stay up on them in front of the ark of God. And as God says of idolaters, those who worship them become like them. It's, it's as if the Philistines were, were as dumb as the wood that Dagon was made out of. How come they couldn't see how helpless and worthless Dagon was? The men who came in that first morning to find Dagon slammed down on his face in front of the ark, they never thought to themselves, wait a minute, maybe Dagon isn't so powerful and great after all. Even though their actions were essentially saying, let me help you to your feet, old man. They remained as blindly devoted to him as ever. Dagon could not work with his hands. He couldn't do anything. And as evidence of that, God chopped his hands off. If Dagon were so powerful, why couldn't he stop that? How could any Philistine trust in Dagon's ability to protect him when Dagon couldn't protect himself? But God wasn't done with Dagon just yet. Not only did he break Dagon's hands off, he also cut his head off and rolled it across the temple into the doorway. When those Philistine worshipers came in that second morning, they had to step over Dagon's severed head to get into the temple. God was brutally mocking Dagon's weakness. This is pure scorn. Some God you are, I broke your hands and ripped your head off and you just stood there like a statue. Oh, wait. You are a statue. <laughs> Hands are a symbol of the ability to work, to do things. And the head is a symbol of the ability to think. And this is saying, your God is a blockhead. Literally, he's just a block of wood with no more capacity to think or plan than a lump of firewood. Whereas Jehovah says, I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Not only does our God think, without his existence, there could be no such thing as thought. In the final analysis, all the gods of the nations are no different from, than, than Dagon. Call him or her Dagon, Baal, Marduk, Shiva, Ali, Cardi B, Tom Brady, Tom Hanks, Barack, Bibi, or King Louis. They are all as weak, worthless, and ineffectual as Dagon. They cannot help their devotees. They don't even know their devotees. I mean, except as sources of revenue. And that brings us to our third point, the Philistine reaction. The Philistine reaction is the typical reaction of idolaters. Unbelief is incorrigibly blind. The Philistines had imagined that they had triumphed over Jehovah. In our text this morning and next Sunday's text, God is going to undeceive them on that score. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? The Philistines are finding out the hard way that he who sits in the heavens laughs at their feeble victory. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? The only reason the Philistines had had any success against Israel is because God permitted it for purposes he hid from the Philistines. 
Israel may very well have understood that they were suffering the negative sanctions of the broken covenant. But the Philistines were completely in the dark to the fact that God was merely utilizing them as a rod to chastise his wayward church. And the most typical thing in the world for idolaters to do when some misfortune befalls them is to seek for hidden connections. As we pointed out a few weeks ago, this is the source of the origin of nearly all superstitions. Superstition is God's judgment on unbelief, rejection of the truth. And idolatry so blinds the mind that the acts of its superstitions can often be brutish and cruel. Calvin refers to the idolatrous superstition as the fervor of idolatrous superstition as insane zeal. And he's not overstating it a bit. The most noticeable thing is the Philistines' reaction to Dagon's decapitation. God knocked Dagon's head off, rolled it like a bowling ball across his temple onto the threshold of the door. When Dagon's benighted worshipers come in that morning, they have to hop unexpectedly over Dagon's head to keep from stepping on his face. Now, you'd think that anyone with horse sense would say, Dagon is nothing compared to the God of the Hebrews. Nope. Unbelief is blind. They pick up poor Dagon's head and leap over the threshold of the door. And it becomes part of their religious tradition from then on to hop over the threshold of the door. Instead of seeing in this the worthlessness of Dagon, they attribute magical status to the doorframe. It is insane zeal. From now on, let us never tread on this magical spot that has been hallowed by Dagon's head resting on it when Jehovah knocked his head off and rolled it across his temple. In the early days of the church, the first 300 years, Christians were severely persecuted. They were often routinely arrested and killed for their faith. And during those days, they developed little ways of communicating with each other. They couldn't have church buildings, so they had to worship in secret. So they came up with ways to identify themselves to each other as Christians and to point the way to the secret meeting place. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with the the fish symbol as a symbol of Christianity. It's actually, actually an acronym. The word for fish in Greek is ichthus, and that was used as an acronym for the sentence, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. The first letters of those words in Greek spell the Greek word for fish. Early Christians drew that symbol in the dirt with their walking sticks or their foot, pointing in the direction of the secret meeting place. Only another Christian would know what that meant. When a person saw it, they just rub it out, walk a little bit in that direction and draw another one. And eventually, if you followed the arrows, you would get to the meeting place. Another symbol you're probably familiar with is the sign of the cross. It was an early way of identifying yourself as a Christian. No one but a fellow Christian would know what that meant. So if a non-Christian saw you cross yourself, he wouldn't think anything of it. Eh, His forehead is itchy. But a fellow Christian would get it. But shortly after Christianity was legalized, this practice turned into sheer superstition. St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, wrote critically of this practice. 
He talks about people attending the, you know, immoral shows in the theater. And when they got scared or startled, they would instinctively cross themselves. And Augustine says, if they had the cross in their heart, instead of merely signed across their chests, they wouldn't have been in that immoral place to begin with. Now, Augustine was born a mere 40 years after Christianity was legalized. So these things have have noble origins, but they've just degenerated into bumper stickers or lucky charms. But this this hop over the doorframe thing, it never had noble origins. In its best day, it was sheer folly. My God got his block knocked off, and this is the magic place where his head rolled. But we're going to need to go back to Shiloh before we close. Israel does not yet have a king, so we're technically still in the era of the judges. In Judges 18, we read of a man named Micah who makes a graven image for his own private chapel at home. He hires a Levite to be his priest and congratulates himself on his good luck. Soon, though, his house is attacked and the idol and Micah's nameless priest are carried off to the territory of Dan by Danites. In Judges 18.31, we read, So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made, all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. The whole time that God had his holy tabernacle among his church set up in the city of Shiloh, many people were traveling to Dan instead to worship Micah's graven image, an image that couldn't protect its benefactor nor keep itself from being stolen. And this is largely part of God's rationale for the judgment of Shiloh. When men belittle, ignore, and reject the means of grace, when they turn a deaf ear to word and sacrament, God may be pleased in his justice to withhold these blessings from them. You don't want it? Fine, I'll send it elsewhere. Holland was once the high watermark of Reformed Orthodoxy. The Synod of Dort, 1618 to 1619, gave us the Canons of Dort, a more biblical statement of the doctrine of salvation the world has never seen. Dutch theologians such as Vucius, Van Maastricht, Abrakel, and Gomarus have never been equaled for their encyclopedic knowledge of theology and their mastery of Scripture. The universities and churches of Holland were once the pride of the Reformed world. But once the poison of Arminianism took root, the faith became more and more corrupt, and men fell into disregard for the truths of Scripture. They placed their confidence in their Dagon, free will, and the rot set in. God withheld the gracious influences of his gospel from men who chose to rely on the arm of flesh. Today, Holland is one of the most degenerate and immoral countries on the face of the earth. There are places in Amsterdam that would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. They didn't want God in his word, so he took it away. The glory departed. Compare church attendance 50 years ago to today even in this part of the country, and ask yourself if we shouldn't be worried that God will remove his presence from us. People often mourn the decay of society and say, we need to go back to the way things were. And God could very well reply, yeah, well, I I I never saw you in church, even in the good old days. Go now and cry to the gods which you have chosen. 
Many people would mourn the community's loss if the doors of a church closed for good. But many of those same people seldom darken the doors of the church. Why mourn the loss of something you never valued to begin with? Our text teaches us that if we make God unwelcome by our unfaithfulness and ingratitude, He may very well depart. May we never, never commit such a sin. May He never write Ichabod over our doors. The apostate Israelites and the pagan Philistines thought that God was gone. He was dead and buried, but the third day he rose again. God kills and makes alive. Zion was being redeemed with judgment. Let us pray.